the fabric of our community is the Dhamma. And the three pillars or the three foundations of the Dhamma are the practice of dana, generosity, sila, living in harmony, and bhavana, development of the mind, which includes both tranquility and insight. Now, when we talk about fabric, we know that fabric is a woven material that has a warp and a weft, and the more tightly it is woven, the stronger the fabric. And essentially, its definition comes from something skillfully produced. This is from the French, uh, the French uh, 15th century. And when we think of our, the fabric of our community, we can see that it takes a lot of skill to weave together the threads of community so that it supports all members. When we talk about community, often we think of geographical location, but it also refers to uh, any collection of interdependent beings that have a common uh, interest or a common understanding that have a feeling of fellowship or sisterhood, however you prefer to refer to that. But it also is those who have a similar identity or similarity or field of interest. And so when we look to this community, we may be geographically widespread, we may be chronologically widespread, but we have this interest in the Dhamma. The Dharma being the truth, the way things are, the Dharma being the teachings of the Buddha that point to or guide us along the way of less suffering. And also the Dharma refers to each moment's experience, which is of utmost value, without paying attention or remembering to uh, recognize the present moment, we're just lost in our thoughts. So tonight I want to speak about these three practices, actually two of the three practices. We've been speaking a lot here this week about uh, the development of the mind through mindfulness and the development of wisdom. So tonight I want to speak more about the first or the other two pillars, the practice of dana, generosity, and the practice of sila, or living in harmony. The Buddha said there are these two kinds of persons that are rare in the world. One who takes the initiative in helping others and one who is grateful. And it's interesting that to take initiative in helping others we must have a generosity of spirit, we must have something to offer, our heart, our knowledge, our material goods. We could really say that it's having a a generous heart, a generous and a kind heart. And gratitude, Western science, Western psychology has come to discover, is the single most intervention for engendering a sense of well-being. The single most effective intervention for arousing your own sense of well-being 
is to express your gratitude. So I want to talk about generosity first. You know, I mentioned the other night that the teachings of the Buddha are to do good, avoid causing harm, and to purify your mind. And all three of these uh, injunctions of the Buddha are practiced with every act of generosity. And the Buddha spoke about the practice of generosity or the act or the habit or the cultivating generosity, not even as a particularly Buddhist teachings, but salt of the earth people across the face of the earth value generosity, recognize the necessity actually of generosity in our life, both as a recipient and as an expression of our care for others. Shantideva was a 8th century Indian Buddhist scholar who wrote the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. And he says, All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. And all the misery the world contains has come through seeking pleasure for oneself. Maybe. I mean, that's a nice saying, but we might not yet have confirmed it for ourselves. We might not really want to believe it. Uh, We may aspire to that, but until we know for ourselves, we shouldn't um, just assume that it's true. So when we look at generosity, it is the initial practice of learning the value of letting go. And in some sense, we could say that the whole of the Buddha's path Uh, to be developed is a path of learning how to let go. Not only learning how to let go, but learning how to grieve the loss of everything and learning how to grieve effectively. Because we know things are impermanent. We can't hold on anyway. What we give, what we offer of our time, our knowledge, our wisdom, our resources is never lost. It always stays in, in the, the flow of the community, if you will. The primary element for practicing generosity is to remove our attachment to the things, to possessions, remove our attachment to the idea of ourself needing, having, relying on, on them. Because to the extent that we can practice generosity, we feel happy. You know, even if you give a stray dog a bone, you have a friend. You might not want that friend, but you have one. (laughs) Because those who who offer gifts are well-loved, and those who receive gifts have some, some expression or some feeling of kindness or gratitude. And it's hard to have animosity towards those to whom you give, or jealousy, or even pride, or anxiety, or aversion. And so in finding a way, finding an op- taking the opportunity, really, to practice generosity, then we arouse, or we cultivate, we develop these wholesome qualities in the mind. It's said that there's three, three phases of the happiness of practicing generosity. When we think, oh, in the future... Next week, I'm going to 
make an offering. I'm going to visit a school, or I'm going to see some invalid, or we're going to spend some time with someone, or whatever it is. When we anticipate, when we think about, when we make plans to share with others, it, it, it lifts the heart. It, it, it starts a bubbling, a bubbling happiness in there, just in anticipation. And then when we actually are in the presence of the recipient and we offer whatever gift of time or whatever we have and we see their happiness and we feel our own happiness, it's important to register all that's going on there. The quality of your heart, what you see, what you hear, what you feel. Because the strength of the memory through all the sense doors is the impact of the the karmic imprint of that action. So in one sense we want to we want to make the deepest imprint on the mind, on the heart that we can through seeing, hearing, touching, giving, feeling your heart, the joy in your heart and really making a point of taking notice of it, being mindful while doing so. And then when we after our generosity has been completed, any time we remember back to that time, that person, that event, that feeling in our heart, we can be happy. Manindra, uh, one of our teachers, former teachers from India, used to say, if you want to be happy in the future, practice generosity now. Because every time you remember it, then you have a reason to be happy. And who can stop you from remembering Before I went to uh, the monastery in Burma to practice, I was living in western Massachusetts. And I was building, I was, a, I was a builder, and I read a newspaper article about a potter that lived nearby who uh, created pottery in, an, in, a, in a, a Japanese form of pottery, and he fired his pottery once each season in a wood-fired kill. And he had built on his property a Japanese tea house, an authentic uh, Japanese tea house. And he had invited someone from Japan every summer to offer the tea ceremony several times a day. So I went and I said, oh, I've never, I, haven't had, I haven't seen that kind of ceremony. I, haven't, I don't know this potter. And so I went to visit him one time. And he had an old New England farm. And he'd restored the buildings a little bit, just enough to have a studio and a, and a, a pottery shop and a, a showroom and, and beautiful grounds. It was just really, just, he, was a, he was a great gardener. And he just had fantastic, uh, a couple of acres of trees and fruit trees and flowers and flower beds. And it was just really nice. And his pottery was quite unique. It was, it was nice, and, but too expensive for my, my pocketbook. But I looked around and I, just, I spent uh, you know, a couple hours just wandering around and looking at the gardens and the pottery. And he had one room, one whole room of his, um, of his uh, sales room that was just for tens. When he, when he emptied out the, the kill each season, each, each uh, firing, he took all of the best pieces, museum quality pieces, he'd say, 
and he put him in this one room. So this one room had all tens, the best of anything he'd made. And there was some really pretty extraordinary, exquisite things there. And I went and, and uh, participated in the tea ceremony. You know, that frothy green tea that <laughs> the Japanese like. <laughs> but after a couple hours, I was just, just filled with joy and happiness. It was just such a pleasant feeling. It was so nice. I wanted to thank him, but he was traveling and he wasn't there at the time. So I found out when he'd be back and when he came back, I wanted to offer him a gift because I, I couldn't afford to, to buy any of the pottery. I was still pretty penniless. And uh, so at that time, I was making, the one thing I did every weekend was make bake my own bread. I was eating a lot of bread because I was doing a lot of physical work. So I'd bake a half a dozen loaves of bread, and I would give one away every week. So I said, that's what I'll do. He was a, he was a, um, a single guy. And uh, so I took a loaf of bread over to him, and I told him how much I appreciated what he had offered to the community in this tea ceremony in the gardens. It was all free. Just go uh, wander around. So I gave him a loaf of bread, and we struck up a friendship. So when he next came to fire his kill, it was in the winter, in December, and it was on a full moon night, and he asked me if I would come help him fire the kill, because wood fire kill takes, you know, 24 hours or 36 hours, whatever it is, it's, it's a long time. And he had gotten the fire started and kept it going all day, but he needed to get some rest at night so that he could come back in the morning and finish firing it off and be done. So he asked me if I would help him fire the kill. So I went over it, you know, 8 o'clock at night. He taught me how to throw these little sticks of wood in the three chambers and monitor the temperature and record them every 15 minutes and whatever it was. And it was a freezing cold night. Not not like Minneapolis freezing, but it was freezing. <laughs> I came here once when it was freezing. <laughs> Never again. <laughs> okay, so it was a freezing cold night, but it was full moon. So I was in this sweatshop next to this wood fire kill. It must have been 100 degrees where I was working, and it was like 20 degrees outside, but it was just gorgeous. So I just spent the night tossing sticks, going outside, cooling off, looking at the full moon, going back in. He came out in the morning, and I could leave, go home, go to bed, and he finished off the firing. In a couple of days when it had cooled off, he invited me over to help him unload. It took a couple of hours to just open the door, open the kill, and bring out all the pieces, lay them out on the floor. And as they came out, he picked out the tents, put them aside, and after everything else, everything was out, and we had them all on the floor, he said, you can take, you can, you can take whatever one you want. You can have any of the, any of the nine or unders. <laughs> it was good. It was, he was generous. So I looked around, and I found a bowl. Uh, he had big pieces, little pieces, cups, all kinds of things. But I found a bowl that was about a meal-sized bowl. So I, I, I wanted that, and he offered it to me. And he was really happy. I was really happy to be there and receive it. I used that bowl every time I went on retreat. I used it at home, but I took it re- to retreat with me. And it was just the right size, and I, I, I put a lot into that bowl, and I put a lot of attachment into that bowl. So it was really valuable to me. When I went to Burma, and uh, to Dane, I just put everything I owned, packed it up, put it in my truck, parked my truck, and went off to Asia. After practicing in Asia for five years, when I returned to the States, I had so much gratitude for my teachers 
who had kind of led me in this path of the Dharma and kind of paved the way for my going to Burma and receiving the teachings and practice there. I had so much gratitude that I wanted to give my Western teachers gifts. So I looked through everything I owned and I found this bowl. And I said, wow, this is my most, most valuable thing. And so I wanted to offer it to one of my teachers who had just had a, a house built. So I offered it to her and I was really happy because I had a lot of, I mean, she was a really extraordinary teacher for me. And I'd offered it to her and because she had a new house, she didn't use it in her kitchen. She put it on her, over, on her mantle over the fireplace. So every time I'd go to her house, I'd see it there. And that kind of pleased me that she valued it in that way. And then I lost track of it, and years went by, and I got invited into um, Cambridge one evening to visit with a, a Dharma benefactor, really, a woman who, great, great supporter of the Dharma, who'd done a lot of practice, and he was just inviting me in for a, kind of a check-up and see how things are going. So I went in, we had you know, a late afternoon tea in the courtyard, and as it got cooler in the evening, we went into her house to finish our conversation, into her little bungalow, and she had given everything away. She just uh, was living very simply, uh, quite a renunciate, and just a really, uh, really beautiful woman. And uh, she said, well, we can, we can sit in here. And so I went into her living room, the living room part of her living room, dining room, and there was uh, a little two-inch Buddha Rupa on the mantelpiece, and there was a big rubber tree over in the corner. And then there was a little one-person stuffed chair and a two-person stuffed love seat or something on either side of a small coffee table over in the corner. So she said, we can sit over here. So I went over and I sat down in the chair. And she sat down in the, the chair opposite me. And I looked on the table and there's that bowl. <laughs> I said, oh, that's a really nice bowl you have there. And she said, yes, that's a really nice bowl. You know, one of my teachers gave it to me. I said, yes, I know. <laughs> so she says, huh? And I said, you know, uh, do, you, do you know the history of that bowl? No. So I told her the history. And she was really happy because she was happy that her teacher had given it to her. And at first when I said, hey, my, the woman I gave it to gave it away. Hmm. You know, but then I thought, oh, well, she must have appreciated it enough to give it to someone who was her benefactor too. So... I was happy that the benefactor had it. Now, when I think back about that bowl, it has been given away by the potter, by me, and my teacher. It's been received by me, my teacher, and the benefactor. And we've all received the happiness of receiving it, the happiness of using it, and the happiness of giving it away. The happiness that that little bowl has brought into the world is far more valuable than the cost of the bowl. And that's the way generosity works. If you have something and give it away, you don't lose it. You don't lose the value of it. You gain this, the value of this happiness in knowing you used it, you appreciated it, you gave it, they received it, they're happy, they use it. Gift-giving is a way of kind of like ensuring your continued happiness. 
the Buddha said of generosity, he said, if beings knew as I know the resultant benefit of generosity, they would not let an opportunity go by without sharing. They wouldn't let any opportunity go by without sharing. What did the Buddha know about generosity, the value of generosity? It's said that the benefits to the donor, one who is, who is generous, is that they're well-loved. There was a monk in, in the monastery where I stayed in Burma, named Rudzatila. And he was extremely generous. He was a big, energetic guy from the countryside, but he was teaching in, in the monastery. And in the countryside, they make this um, jaggery. Jaggery is palm sugar candy. It's just pure sugar from the palm tree. And that's something that people who are on the eight precepts can have in the afternoon, sugar. And so he had these big jars of jaggery, little pieces of jaggery, inside his cottage. And anybody in the monastery could come for a piece of jaggery anytime, any day. And there was a steady stream of people going, <laughs> getting, getting a little boost in the evening, you know. It's like... <laughs> And at one period of time while I was there, he, um, he asked me if I would help him learn English or improve his English, and he asked me to come by and speak with him for an hour a day. So towards the end of the afternoon, it was a little slow going. Mindfulness a little slow going. Yeah. Okay. I would go to uh, speak with him for, for an hour, and we would just sit around and talk about whatever, whatever we could think of to talk about. And when I left to go back to my room or to go back to my own practice. Every time he gave me something. He wouldn't let me leave without giving me something. It might only be a little notebook. It might be a set of robes. It might be a soft drink. It might be a pen. Whatever it was. But he would not let me get out of the door without offering something. Every time. He was the most, one of the most well-loved monks in the monastery. Because he was just like that. So one of the benefits is, of course, a lot of affection from others. And you have a good reputation. You know, those who are generous have a reputation that spreads before them because their, their benefit to others is blameless. They're not, they're not into, a, it's not a commercial transaction, it's not a negotiated transaction. It's just a gift, a gift giving. And that kind of behavior is, for the most part, blameless. And it's said that those who are generous have a lot of confidence, self-confidence in that they can feel at ease with anyone, with any group, in any situation. Nicholas Kristof, who's an op-ed column writer in the New York Times, wrote of research at the National Institute of Health, where they found that when one thinks of offering generosity to charity, Areas of the brain light up that are usually associated with selfish pleasures like eating and sex, implying that we are hardwired to be altruistic. And he concluded that while charity has a mixed record of helping others, it has an almost perfect record of helping ourselves. When I say that, you know, Dana and Sila and Bhavana are the three pillars of the Dharma in our life, to establish our life in the Dharma, in the truth, and in the 
the practice of the Buddhas and in, in uh, uh, connection with the present moment in an ongoing way. What I mean is that if we practice generosity, of course our relationships with others, our sila, relationship with others, are going to be more harmonious. And if we practice generosity, we're going to learn, we're going to be wise about the nature of relationships. Or if we practice sila, living in harmony with one another, of course we're going to be generous with others. And of course we're going to learn the skills, the wisdom of maintaining harmonious relationships. If we practice meditation and cultivating the mind, we're going to be calmer, we're going to be wiser, and this is going to result in greater harmony. And so the three pillars are like the three legs of a tripod. If we only have two, our life is unstable. If we have all three, the, 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 the platform of our life, the foundation of our life is stable. Generosity is not only a happiness practice, it's not only a practice of compassion, as I mentioned the other night with the uh, homeless, the homeless uh, panhandlers in Portland. It's also a practice of wisdom and compassion and renunciation, learning to let go. And one of my, one of uh, the students that used to come to our um, month-long retreats in Maui when we were doing them is a woman who started a non-profit in Silicon Valley to take the question, what is enough, into the boardrooms of corporations in the valley. And that was her, that was her message, just to ask people, more specifically, to ask corporations to consider what is enough. When are they ever going to have enough? And she had, you know, all the paraphernalia, free cups and medallions and this and that to remind people. And you know, ways of ways of uh, questioning and answering questions. And that was her her mission. And I think it's a really wonderful question. You know, to ask ourselves, what is enough? What is enough of anything that we use in our life? And I ask this question from this perspective. We live at the top of the heap. No matter what your condition in this life is, we're at the top of the heap. Of all humanity, we have the most resources, the most opportunities, the best health, the best, the most... It's not that we have a thievish intention in our hearts, living the life we do, but we should consider there are untold generations of humans that are not yet born, that are going to want to live uh, easily on this earth. And is anything we're doing now in our life going to compromise their possibility. We might say, in line with the second, uh, second precept, not to take what is not offered. Could we say that those future generations are inviting us to use as we will the resources of the earth? Do you think they are offering it to us in the way we're using them? 
And I think it's an important question because who is going to ask this question of us? They're not born yet. But we know there will be untold numbers of generations. Whether it's nieces and nephews and kids and grandkids and there's just a lot of beings left to be born and there's some question whether the earth can support them at the level of our lifestyle. So it's important to consider just what it is that we can live with or what is enough in our life. And is there something that we have that we don't need that others can benefit from? Is there some way we can practice generosity to the current needs? And can we practice renunciation for the future needs of beings? I ask these questions, and I know they're sometimes uncomfortable, because it's easy to say, well, this is just our culture. This is just the way it is. You know, we can't, it's, it's a big bother to live otherwise than the way it is. And yet, can we feel happy about our behavior? Is this a way of happiness for us? Is this a lifestyle that conduces to long-term happiness? Or is there some regret, some remorse, some embarrassment, some self-consciousness? And if so, those are kinds of suffering that only we can do anything about. And so it's, it's incumbent on us to each ask ourselves if we're satisfied, if we're at ease with, if we're content with, if we're making uh, the effort, really, to ensure our own happiness and the happiness of others yet to come. The Bodhisattva was born under a tree. He sat under a tree. He first attained deep absorption or jhana under a tree. He realized full awakening, becoming the Buddha while sitting under a tree. And he said that he died under a tree. He said, I resort to remote resting places in the forest as one of the noble ones possessed of wisdom. Seeing in myself this possession of wisdom, I found great solace in dwelling in the forest. It is because I see two benefits that I still resort to remote resting places in the forest. I see a pleasant abiding for myself here and now, and I have compassion for future generations. I've wondered what that means. I wondered what the Buddha meant. I resort to the forest because I have compassion for future generations. He also went on to say, there are these trees and the roots of trees. There are these empty huts. Meditate. Do not be negligent lest you regret it later. I don't know how many of you have read the... um, Remember the author of the book Collapse, about the collapse of different civilizations throughout humankind? Almost all of them were because they cut down the trees. Collapse of civilization because they cut down their trees. 
Maybe that's what the Buddha understood about going to the forest out of compassion for future generations. If it's if it ensures the continued existence of forests for future generations. Visaka, who was the Buddha's chief patroness, said, When I remember my acts of generosity, I shall be glad. When I'm glad, I will be happy. When my mind is happy, my body will be tranquil. And when my body is tranquil, I will feel pleasant. When I feel pleasure, my mind will become concentrated or collected. And that will bring about the development of the spiritual faculties that I spoke about last night. The spiritual powers and the factors of enlightenment. By reflecting on one's acts of generosity, it brings about the factors of enlightenment. This is the value of generosity in our life. It's a practice. It's a practice of renunciation. It's a practice of uh, letting go. It's a practice of happiness. It's a practice of compassion. It's a mindfulness practice. You can't do it if you're not mindful. And it only brings benefit to yourself and others. So we can see as a as some of the threads our uh, community fabric it's essential it's we, we don't we don't have a community without sharing so the second um, of the three pillars of the Dharma is Sila or living in harmony with one another Sila is living in such a way as to not cause harm to others by what we say or what we do, speaking or acting. And our speaking and acting, it is said, are guarded by the two guardians of the world. And the two guardians of the world are qualities in our own heart. They are the fear of doing something wrong that hurts others. And it's the shame of doing something wrong that hurts others. Now, I want to use this word shame carefully, and I want to use this word fear carefully, because we're not talking about aversive fear, and we're not talking about humiliating shame. We're talking about the qualities within our own heart that allow us to be humble, modest, and conscientious. So that we care about others. And we're afraid to act in a way that would cause them harm. That's wisdom. That's the fear of wisdom. Or wisdom fear rather than aversion fear. And when we think of our community members, those that we most care about how, we, how they think of us, we care about those that we love in our community. And we, we, we would feel ashamed to act in a way that would cause them harm. This is wisdom speaking. This is not humiliation speaking. And so when we feel this kind of what's called hiri and dotapa, the fear of doing wrong, the shame of doing, of seeing, of being seen by others to have done wrong, then it really is uh, qualities of wisdom, wholesome, wholesome qualities of mind. 
So if we let our speaking and acting be guided by hiri and otapa, then we will purify our speech or the intention before speaking and the intention before acting. We'll purify them of what are called the transgressive torments. We won't be acting them out in a way that causes others harm. And maybe the most frequent thread weaving this community into existence is how we speak to one another. We share a lot verbally. And as we all know, I don't need to remind you, it is so easy to cause harm by our speaking, by what we say, how we say it, when we say it. I heard a recent great teaching from uh, one of my Dharma colleagues. She said, um, a closed mouth gathers no foot. (laughs) (laughs) Nevertheless, we still have to speak, so I want to speak about the Buddha's guidance or instruction for skillful speech, meaning speech which is beneficial, speech which is not harmful. There are five qualities. The first is that when we speak, we speak with a heart that has love and compassion in it. Now, even with love and compassion, sometimes we have to say things that are kind of hard to hear. But before we say that which is hard to hear, we should check. Can I say this to this person with love, with care, with consideration, with compassion for them? Because to ensure the love and compassion will affirm our connection with that person, even if what we have to say is hard to hear. So it's important that we, that we check, that we monitor the, well, the attitude in our mind when we're about to speak. Because it, with love and compassion, it honors, it maintains, it nourishes our connection. And if we can speak from a place of love and compassion, we'll have no regret, we'll have no remorse, we'll have no, no reason to, be guilt, to feel guilty or to be blamed because we've been careful, that kind of careful. It is said that to speak with a loving, compassionate heart um, is not to speak what is called pisunawada. Pisunawada is speech which is used to defame another, to malign another, to damage the reputation of another, It's backbiting, it's slanderous, it's malicious. And while sometimes we don't intend to harm another, sometimes we'll find ourselves speaking to someone about someone who's not present. And I would ask you to consider, can you say to them what you say about them? And if you can't, What kind of speech is that? That's a high bar. That's a really high bar. To just ask yourself, when you notice that you're speaking about someone to another person, are you speaking in such a way that that you might change 
the listener's opinion of that third person. And why are we doing that? Are we seeking alliance, allies, allegiance? Are we uh, kind of sharing gossip? What is it? What is it that's so important that we're willing to damage the threads of their relationship? It's also said that right speech, skillful speech, is gentle, not harsh. Gentle speech creates a feeling of intimacy, of transparency, of uh, connection. And of course, the opposite of that is crude speech, harsh speech, unkind speech that taunts, belittles, shames. And we often see it and hear it in humor. A lot of humor is hurtful where we make fun of or poke fun at someone's appearance or their ethnic identity or their sexual or gender or sex preference behaviors or their knowledge or lack of knowledge. And we have such subtle ways of basically putting others in their place. And it's used to belittle, it's used to, to taunt, it's used to defame, it's used to... Um, well, it makes people uncomfortable. And we know when we hear that kind of language, we can cringe, we just go... Mm. And so, such, we, want to, we want to try to speak words that can reach, reach the heart of the listener so that it's, it's affirming rather than demeaning. The fabric of our community is as fragile as, the, as a single intention in what we say and do. Because the fabric of harmony is easily torn, ripped, cracked, worn by carelessness. The third quality of skillful speech, not hurtful speech that the Buddha spoke about, is that it should be truthful. This is speech that is not deceptive, not misleading, it's not false. When you think of when you think of those who have lived with a commitment to the truth, you, you feel the power that that kind of commitment has in Gandhi, uh, Martin Luther King, Aung San Suu Kyi, Nelson Mandela, and there are others even in our own community, not just the national or international uh, recognizable figures, but those among your friends or family who are just really careful about what they say, who are you know, a little a little more honest or a little more, a little less deceptive, a little more precise. And we recognize it. It's not like they have to announce it. We recognize, oh, their speech is really, it's got some, something special to it. You know the story of the, the little, um, the, it's 
I guess it's a children's story or a myth or whatever, about the little boy who was guarding the community sheep out on the, the field and he cried wolf. You know, he got bored one afternoon and, you know, he was just kind of playing around and he just cried wolf, wolf. And the villagers came running out of the village to chase the wolf away so that the wolf wouldn't carry away their sheep. And when they come running out, the little boy said, ha, ha, fooled you, that no wolf. <laughs> so the villagers went back to the village, went back to work, and a week later or so, the little boy bored again, and he cried, wolf, wolf, and the villagers come running out, and he says, ha, ha, fooled you again, there's no wolf. <laughs> you know, so they go back to the village. You know, a couple of weeks later, a wolf came to start you know, carry off the sheep, and he cries, wolf, wolf, and all the villagers said, ah, he's just fooling us, there's no wolf. So they didn't go out, they lost their communal property. That's what not telling the truth exposes our community to losing something of communal value. Our community is left in danger, unprotected, without safety, when there's not a commitment to the truth. The fourth quality of skillful speech that the Buddha spoke about was that what we speak, if it's true, if we can say it with a loving and kind, compassionate heart, gently, is that it should be beneficial. And unbeneficial speech is called Sampapalapawada. <laughs> I mean, it kind of sounds like unbeneficial speech. But that's speech that is superficial, useless, frivolous, gossip, insignificant, chatter. If you stop and think about what in our present day society is not beneficial, you know, let's see. Superficial, useless, frivolous, gossip, rumor, chatter, and insignificant. Turn off your TV. <laughs> stop your subscriptions to all your magazines. You know, don't go online, and you'll 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 begin to get an idea. The Buddha was speaking to monks and nuns primarily when he was offering a teaching on beneficial speech, and while after identifying all of the unbeneficial speech that one uh, should avoid. Now, you've got to remember that monks and nuns, they're dedicated 24-7 to mindfulness and, and trying, to, trying to purify their mind. They live in community, too. So he listed all the things that they shouldn't be talking about, you know, politicians being the first thing, wars being the second thing, and, you know, street and well gossip and food, clothes, adornments, uh, dwellings, uh, the opposite sex or opposite gender, whatever it is. Um, it, was just, it was just a list of, well, everything that, that, we're, that we're interested in. <laughs> and so, so he, he, was, he was thorough. He said, if these are the things that, you sh- that are unedifying for those who are aspiring to to really free their heart. Then he gave a list of the topics that were beneficial and edifying. You know, talk of mindfulness, talk of uh, seclusion, talk of applying your effort, uh, kind of um, 
I was going to say strenuously, but here we mean it to be uh, perseveringly. Uh, talk about wisdom, right view. Talk about right view. So you know, the next time you go out, you take you go out for dinner with some friends. You know, at, over the dinner table, you could suggest talking about you know, you know right view and the strenuousness of your practice. Okay, well that's what we're up against. Okay. The other thing to to, um, to I know this is this harkens back to some of our old uh, religious dogmatic training. But when we, when we act in such a way, when we, in this case, when we speak in such a way as to cause harm to others, in the, in the monastic community, of course, you have this a ritual of confession. Now, you know, I don't want to... I'm not into a... Do your confessions. But the power of confession is really immense. Because it's not just saying... Oh, I'm a bad boy. I've been a bad boy and receiving some kind of punishment. But rather, in the monastic order, the act of confession is to to go to an elder and just to acknowledge that I have done something to cause harm to another in the community. And you can specify it as to whatever degree you want to. I've done something to cause harm to another in the community. And it, this is your own recognition. It's not, it's not forced out of you. It's your own recognition and your own understanding. And the, the elder uh, monk who receives your confession doesn't shame or blame you. He just says, it's good that you recognize that this act caused harm. So there's an affirmation of the wisdom of recognizing that you've caused harm. And then he says something like, I want to be careful. It's like, please try harder. Or, in this case, please remember this in the future. That's it. You don't have to do 20 push-ups. You don't have to do any, uh, you know, you know, 1,300 refuges and precepts. <laughs> you just have to remember, remember this action that caused harm. And that's, that's the power of confession. You know, you can, it's not like you get off the hook. You don't get relief because you have to remember. You have to remember this action that caused harm and let it guide you in the future to be more careful. The fifth attribute of skillful or harmless speech may be the most difficult. And that is to find the right time for saying what you need to say that is truthful, spoken gently, with a loving and kind heart, and that's beneficial. This requires patience. To know, to wait, to be willing and able to wait until the time when the recipient can hear, when you have the requisite love and compassion, gentleness of speech, have clarified that it's beneficial, that time may never come. And while there may be this urge to share something, to say something, to tell something, someone, 
This is this the Buddha's instruction for the kind of speech that preserves the harmony in community is a really high bar. It's a high bar. But it's also worth understanding, it's worth practicing, it's worth recognizing the difficulty, the challenge of it, and to 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 make it something that we really um, take, I don't want to say take seriously, but remember with uh, a feeling of compassion for others. When we're able to live, as I mentioned, we've spoken about uh, bhavana, our development of mind. When we're able to live with these three qualities, these three practices in our life, generosity, sharing what we have with others, sila, living in harmony, speaking carefully, and acting, you know, not killing, not stealing, not acting out sexually in a way that causes any harm, and speaking in a way that doesn't cause harm. We really create um, the container, uh, a fabric of community that is strong, that requires daily attention. Because we can't get through any day without carefulness of speaking, carefulness of acting, sharing, taking taking any opportunity to share what we can. So I want to tell you a story about the benefit of living a life of these these three practices. So after I'd been in Burma for five years, I was about to leave for the States and return. And one day a couple of women, a couple of Burmese women came to the door of my cottage and I'd never met them before. They spoke good English. They came in and they said, essentially, you got to meet our teacher. I'd met a lot of teachers. (laughs) And what they meant was, you got to meet. We, we we would like to introduce you to our family's sayado, meaning sayado is the elder monk. Every family has a kind of a, a favorite monk or a monk that is the guide or the the instructor, the spiritual instructor for their family. And uh, I'd I'd met a lot, and I was I wasn't particularly interested. Uh, you know, I I, I, I wasn't interested. But they were insistent. They were really insistent that you just got to meet this guy. He's really special, and you know he's been the teacher of our family for for many years. These women were in their thirties or forties, and their mother had been a devotee of this this um, uh, monk. And so I said, okay, 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 yeah. So they made a made an appointment and and came to pick me up in the taxi. Uh, to, to go see this monk. And on the way to visit this monk, they told me about him that when Mahasi Sayadaw that I spoke about the other night had opened his meditation center for lay people, he needed someone to instruct the students who came for meditation instruction. So he had asked this, this monk. And this monk had taught at the meditation center, at Mahasi's meditation center for uh, many years uh, when it, from the time it first opened. And that after he'd been teaching there for 10 years, the meditation center was just so popular. And it was just hundreds, thousands of people coming to practice there that he was just, well, overworked, really. And so he asked for permission to um, be relieved of his duties and to, to after 10 years, Mahasi Sayadaw said, okay, 
you know, you're relieved, and he had other teachers then to carry on. So this monk left the uh, meditation center in kind of central Rangoon, and he went to the northern edge of Rangoon to a town called Nothokalapa, and he found a small piece of forest to have his monastery, where he was offered land for a monastery. And he'd been living there for 30 years when I was about to go see him. And uh, they said that he was really uh, a very simple monk, very humble. Uh, He didn't allow um, his simple forest monastery to be improved with concrete buildings and electric lights and a phone and anything like that. It was just simple wooden buildings in the forest and he had his own cottage and there were just a few monks, uh, maybe a dozen monks that were living with him. But because in Burma, when women are finished with their family responsibilities or they're widowed uh, or whatever, they, they often go to the monasteries and, you know, clean and take care and have, a practice, have an opportunity to practice. They're very devotional and they're very service-minded. And uh, so this monk had built a large dormitory for elder women to come and live and to help take care of the monastery and just to be to be instructed and to have the chance to practice. Really, they just wanted to practice. So they told me that since he had moved there 30 years ago, people who had practiced with him in the meditation center in central Rangoon had heard about had heard about him and practiced with him and found out where he was living and they had moved to that area to be near him. And now his little two-acre forest was in the middle of this vast sprawling suburbia of all these people that had come to live around him to get his teachings and to be with him. And he had a large meditation hall where they would come at night. They'd worked on the days and they'd come at night to practice and he would offer them a, a dharma instruction and then they'd go home and go to work the next day and come back the next evening. So I was going to see him, and, and he just sounded pretty unique. It's, you know, different and, and unique. So they said, even though their mother had, had tried to offer him a building, a new building for his, for his monastery, he refused. He just wouldn't let it be built until their mother was about to pass away. And then he let her offer just a small cottage for one monk, a little cootie for one monk. He just wasn't into, you know, a big, a big scene. So I went to see him, and we went in. And he just, he, he himself just lived in a little cottage, a little wooden cottage, uh, and it was pretty dark in there. It was cool, actually. And we went in and sat down and, you know, on the floor and paid my respects. And the women talked with him for a while and then translated for me, and I said that I'd been in Burma for five years. I was about to uh, return to... Um, States, and I just asked him if he had any advice, just what what would be skillful for me, what what kind of advice did he have. And he was reflective, and he was just looking at me, and he was just very present, without self-consciousness or anxiety or anything like that. And he just said, you know, it's good that you've been here practicing, you know, I'm sure you've learned a lot. But he says, when you go back to America, just keep practicing. 
As long as you're practicing, everything else will turn out okay. As long as you're practicing, everything else will turn out okay. That seemed pretty simple. Well, that was a simple instruction. It's not easy to do, but nevertheless. So I was really struck by uh, his simplicity, his sincerity, his demeanor, his energetic appearance. And so I asked him if I could come practice with him. Now, at that time, Burma was still under military law. You couldn't go anywhere. Any foreigner was tracked everywhere they went in the country, and you had to have permission to stay anywhere other than the sponsoring monastery where I was staying. But I was kind of impressed by him. So I went to I went to the Office of Religious Affairs, and I told them that I would like to go practice with this monk. And they filled out the form for me, signed it, and I got permission without telling the monastery where I was staying. Whoops. So I went. And when I went back to, to see him, I had about two weeks that I could practice with him. He, um, I said, well, where, where can I practice? And he showed me that I would practice in his cottage. But it wasn't his cottage where he lived. It's his little uh, addition where he practiced, where he did his meditation. And it was a long car. It was about six feet wide, 60 feet long, uh, 40 feet long, maybe 45, 50 feet long, something like that. And it was just a long, narrow room with a bed at one end and a toilet at the other. And the windows were such that they had little shutters on them, so you couldn't look out horizontally. You could only look out at the ground right next to the building. So you couldn't see anything. So he said, you can stay here. And I said, well, when, what, what time of day do we go on alms round? I, I want to be ready to go on alms round so I can go get my food for the day. And he said, you know, you only have a couple of weeks here. We, I and the other monks will go get alms and we'll bring it back and share it with you. I said, oh, okay. So I went in, the, went in the room to practice. And you, know, you sit down and you walk. And you sit and you walk. And there's nothing to do but sit and walk. Go to the toilet occasionally. And uh, so after... You know, three or four days, I was kind of getting cabin crazy. So I said, God, I'd like to, I think I'd like to go out and walk around the monastery a little bit, get a little fresh air, and take in the sights, just kind of, you know, get a little thing. So I kind of thinking about it. And then, yeah, I decided I'd go. So I went to the door, I opened the door to go out, and he was standing right outside the door. <laughs> okay. So he looked at me, he didn't speak English, I didn't speak Burmese. But he looked at me with this, what I interpreted, what I felt as, you're doing well, keep practicing, or something like that. All I knew was I had to close the door and stay in. (laughs) So I stayed in and I kept doing my sitting and walking after another four or five days, I don't know how long it was. Jeez, I was really getting kind of claustrophobic. I said, I think I'll, this time I'm going to go out. So I just kind of, Open the door to go out. He was standing right there. <laughs> you know, when you're practicing with guys like that or minds like that, what have you got to hide? <laughs> Nothing. You know, you can't hide anything. Your mind is like an open book. <laughs> so, of course, Upandita was similar to that. It's just like, when you've got nothing to hide, it's like you can be honest with yourself in a way that is... Well, disarming, actually. Uncomfortable a lot, actually. So, on the last day of my 
the last night of my, my stay with him, uh, he said, in the morning you can go on alms round with us. I said, great. So that evening, there was some kind of village festival nearby, just you know, a couple blocks away. And, you know, in, in, like in many places in Asia, they set up these big loudspeakers, and they're talking and fundraising, chanting, singing. I, I don't know what it is. They're doing something all night. You know, they stop at five in the morning. You know, all night. They're just loud music and chanting and stuff. I don't know what it is. So in the morning, I got up and I put on my robes and got ready to go on alms, and I stepped out into the monastery and... Everybody with the monks were lining up, the dozen of us. And he came down the line and checked us to make sure that our monks, our robes were right, and we had our bowls, and we had some fans, and whatever, to keep the sun off our head. So he was at the head of the line. I was about four or five back. We started out of the monastery, and we got to the edge of the monastery where the, where the forest ended and suburbia started. And he stepped aside, and he waved the monks past him. And when I came along, he pulled me aside, and he waved all the other monks out, and they went out the roadway, the pathway, out into the suburbia. And then he, he indicated for me to follow him. So he turned around, he went back into the monastery, but as I turned around to go back in, I looked where the other monks were, and the whole road ahead of them was lined up with hundreds of people waiting to offer them alms for the day. So he took me back through the monastery, and we walked out the back way, and there was nobody out there. And we walked through these, you know, just kind of, well, there were ox cart tracks in the, in the dust, really. There was no pavement. There were no cars. It was just ox cart and bicycles. And bicycles were hard to ride there. And for, you know, ten minutes or so, we were just walking in the back alleys of, of this, this housing section. And then we turned the corner and we came into view of some marketplace. And some little boy said, oh, the monks are coming, Ponji Labi, the monks are coming. And so we walked up to this um, tea shop, you know, with some stores and some tea shops. And everybody went to the tea, tea cellar and to get something to offer us. A cake, a, you know, they put tea in little plastic bags and tie them up with an elastic band and, and a little bowl of rice and some curries and anything. But they all had something. And they all take off their feet, they take off their shoes and they kneel on the, on the roadside and we'd come up there. And they would come up and offer what they had into our bowls. And we just stood there to receive, and of course the bowls got filled up. One of the shopkeepers gave some little temple boys plastic bags, and we emptied our bowls into the bags, and waiting there, and more people came and filled our bowls again and dumped that into bags, and just everybody that wanted to offer something just came and offered. And after some number of minutes, and the little temple boys with bags full of stuff following us, we continued walking. He took me on an alms round that day of a couple hours, and everywhere we went, every you know, every couple blocks, we had to stop. Somebody would see us, stop, and people would come out of their houses, out of the shops, whatever it was, and offer us everything. Flowers, and we didn't get any robes that day, but flowers and everything you need for the monastery. Candles and all kinds of food. It was just amazing. Got back to the monastery, and of course the other monks had accumulated and had acquired, had been offered just mountains of food, mountains of material goods. And this is the way it was every day there, every day. Because that community so loved that monk because he was such a powerful, 
presence in their communal life. And out of gratitude for his teachings, for him living the quality of life that he was living, they supported him and the monks like that. Now, monks can't keep food overnight in the monastery. So whatever they collected, they would eat what they needed. The women in the, in the center would get what they needed. And the rest would be given away to the poor people every day. This is the fabric of community around monks. Monks with integrity. Monks who live with the truth, live with the Dharma, those who, who really practice generosity, those who practice gratitude, those who practice living in harmony, those who practice development of the mind. And in some small way, to the extent that we do that here, that we develop the commitment to our community, and we practice generosity, and we practice living in harmony, and we practice careful speech, and we develop our mind, we too live in the communal heart like that. We are that kind of resource to each other and to everyone that we share life with. We're not wearing robes. We're not shaving our head. We're not living in a monastery. But we're doing it kind of anonymously in our lives. Don't think it doesn't make an impact. It's really important that we honor the fabric of our community. And we do that by these practices. Practicing generosity, practicing living in harmony, and practicing developing the mind. That monk was Shweyumin Saira. That was Utejaniya's teacher. And he established Utejaniya in his monastery uh, that we now have all gone to to practice. So let's just sit and let these words settle into the heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.